This morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 113 in the English Standard Version, and it is also printed in your bulletins. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are continuing our summer sermon series through the Psalms uh, by taking a closer look at Psalm 113, as you may have gathered by now. Um, And Psalm 113 is uh, the first of six psalms um, in a collection of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel. Um, And these are songs that are sung uh, by the Jewish people during their celebration of the Passover which is their annual remembrance of God liberating them from slavery in Egypt and uh, reestablishing his covenant relationship with them. And so the psalm is written with the supernatural deliverance of the the exodus in view. Um, And for those of you who have been following along in this sermon series, uh, we've been talking about the exodus as a paradigmatic event. Um... What I mean by that is that it serves as a lens through which the Israelites understood and spoke about God's provision for them. Um, Because it was a concrete event in history wherein God acted uh, on behalf of his people in such an undeniably powerful way. And so they could look back on this event in future times of trouble um, and confidently know that God was for them and that he would never abandon them in their hour of need. So that's the backdrop of the Psalms. But, um, so as we've been working through this series, we've been seeing how the Psalms, uh, they give us language uh, to speak to God out of almost any conceivable human experience. They give voice to our emotions. But more than that, they are also profoundly theological. They inform and correct our understanding of who God is and how he relates to us. And Psalm 113 is a classic praise psalm. It is all about worship from beginning to end. And it begins with the words, praise the Lord. It also ends with the words, praise the Lord. All right, so worship is the the theme of this psalm. And worship is an incredibly important concept for us to understand. Because we were created first and foremost to be worshipers. And so in, in verses 1 to 3, the, the psalm divides very easily. Actually, it's nine verses. It divides into essentially 3, 3, 3. And in this first section, it's a general call to worship. 
And in typical Hebrew poetic fashion, the psalmist stacks up these parallel phrases. So he's repeating himself. And this is meant to sort of flesh out the specifics of this call to worship. And so he begins, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. And so he identifies his audience as the servants of the Lord. And obviously the psalmist's original audience were the Israelite people. Um, and the Israelite name was a special name given to them by God, identifying them as his people. But even today, even the modern people of God in the church, us uh, who call ourselves Christian, right? We take the name of Christ on ourselves and it communicates to the world around us that we are fundamentally identified as belonging to him, bought with his precious blood. And so we too are servants of the Lord. We exist to serve at his pleasure. And to live a life of servants and obedience to God is to live a life of worship. And worship is sometimes wrongfully defined and limited to the singing of worship music or worship songs. And that certainly is worship, but that's not all that is worship. And everything that we do when we gather together here on Sunday mornings is worship. When we hear uh, God's word explained and illuminated for us, hopefully well, um, it leads us to wonder and awe at his goodness and greatness. That's worship. We worship, as, as Megan mentioned, as she introduced the offering, we worship by giving of the material and financial gifts that God has given us. We worship by using our talents and skills that he's given us to serve and build up the church. We worship when we practice the sacraments, right? And we taste and see the visible signs of his covenant relationship with us. But worship is also not just limited to things we do at church on Sunday mornings. Worship is happening in every component of our lives when we are properly oriented to and motivated by our relationship with God. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end or purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is a fantastic definition of worship. In a collection of essays called Reflections on the Psalms, uh, C.S. Lewis, as he was trying to sort of, he was working through why it is that we as human beings always have to talk about the things that we most enjoy, right? We all do this. Whatever we're most passionate about, we can't help but talk to other people about it. And he was kind of trying to unpack what that was. And he says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So Lewis is identifying the brilliance of how God has designed us to relate to him. He doesn't demand worship from us because he needs anything from us. If we believe that, then we think far too little of God, and we think far, far too much of ourselves. He is perfectly satisfied in himself. And even if he weren't, why would he turn to us in our lowly opinions of him for fulfillment? Right? This would be like me basing my sense of self-worth on whether or not I think my goldfish likes me. <laughs> and in the same essay, uh, 
that, of, of C.S. Lewis, he attacks this view in, in truly Lewis fashion. He characterizes it as the miserable idea that God, in any sense, need or crave for our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments. And I'm sorry, ladies, because I've known my fair share of vain men, and I don't know why Lewis is picking on you. But the point remains that God does not need us to stroke his ego. That is not why he commands us to praise him. Rather, God's command to praise him benefits us. In a book that I'm currently studying with a group of uh, guys from this church called Habits of Grace, the author points out that the purpose of prayer, and remember that the Psalms are not just songs, they are prayers set to music, and this author points out that the, the purpose of prayer is to come boldly into the conscious presence of God to relate to him, to talk with him, and ultimately to enjoy him as our greatest treasure. John Piper has built an entire ministry organization off of this principle. And in his massively influential book, Desiring God, he laid out the principle, sort of the key thesis of it all, as uh, he's put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a self-perpetuating feedback loop. The more we worship God, the more clearly we see him in all of his majesty and power, and the more we enjoy being in relationship with him and are fed by him and satisfied in him, the more inclined we will be to pour out our hearts in worship to him. And on and on it goes. This is what we were created to do. And this is what eternity with him will be like. But we have a problem. We live in a fallen world, and as human beings, we are subject to the effects of sin at every level of our being. All right, and if you are a Christian, you have been freed from slavery to sin, yes, but its ripple effects remain for the time being. We are subject to what nerdy theologians call the noetic effects of sin, which is simply to say that our ability to even think rightly has been corrupted by sin. And this keeps even those of us who recognize that God is the rightful object of our worship from worshiping him rightly. We tend to err in our interpretations of who God is in one of, uh, generally one of two directions. And those two directions have different but equally dangerous deficiencies. And I think the psalmist in Psalm 113 seeks to provide a corrective to that problem. And so in his call to worship, he says this. He has three verses in a row calling God's people to worship the name of the Lord. Verse 1, praise the name of the Lord. Verse 2, Praise or blessed be the name of the Lord. In verse 3, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So it would seem that if we want to worship God rightly, we need to ask, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to worship the name of the Lord? Because we don't speak in that kind of language. And so the concept of names 
is a very important one in the Old Testament that's easily lost on us. The ancient, uh, the ancient world was a very tribal place, and your identity was bound up in your family name. And it was your association with a specific name that provided your social status and reputation. Your name was a representation of all of the pertinent details of your life and existence. And so the name of the Lord refers to all of the, the attributes of himself that he has revealed to us. It is a stand-in for his entire, complete character and nature. None of his attributes can be parsed apart or separated from any of the other of his attributes. But isn't this exactly what we are so tempted to do? As we've seen time and time again in this series, through the Psalms, humans are so quick to pit God's greatness and sovereignty against his goodness and his love. When we suffer, we tend to either question his power and ability to deliver us from our trial or his willingness to do so. And it's this imbalance in our perception that is being wrestled through in so many of the Psalms. But thankfully for us, the writer of Psalm 113 um, is writing from a place of great clarity. He is seeing rightly, and he praises God for both his greatness and his goodness, and the way that they work together perfectly in how he relates to us. And so, um, there is an outline on your bulletin, but I kind of threw the whole thing out yesterday and started over. So <laughs> it's not totally useful. But what, what, what appears on there as point two is that the name, the name of the Lord is great, right? Something like that. That is essentially my first point. Um, <laughs> when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and commissions him to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, Moses asks him for a name. Right in Exodus 3, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God introduces himself as the one who simply is. He's the God who has existed from eternity and will continue to exist to eternity. No beginning, no end. Who God is defies explanation by finite human categories. He cannot be understood simply with reference to human experience. He is transcendent. And theologians often talk about the transcendence of God or his incommunicable attributes. And what they mean by this is they're simply referring to all the attributes, uh, all the ways in which he is not like us. Right? And the psalmist focuses in on these attributes in verses 4 to 6, the, the second stanza of the psalm, essentially. He says, the, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens, 
and the earth. God sits enthroned above the entire physical universe. He's not bound in any way by the laws and limitations of it that we are. He exists outside of time and space as we understand it and is therefore not subject to change. From his vantage point, he sees all things at all times, and his perspective is not distorted or limited like ours is. Verse 4 says that he is high above all nations. All other powers, all other authorities are subject to his power and authority. All will be called to stand before him and give an account for their lives. And this is good news for those who will submit themselves to his lordship and throw themselves on his mercy. But it is really, really bad news for anyone who would stand up and shake their fist at him. In verse 6, the psalmist seems to suggest that God is so high above us and so set apart that he has to stoop down just to see what's happening on the earth and even in the heavens, right? Which in the language of the psalms is um, a stand-in for the, the vast expanses of outer space. Right, often we say that God resides in heaven. And when a child asks us where heaven is, we usually just say that it's, you know, up there somewhere. Yet we can't even conceptualize a place where the physical universe ends. And the psalmist says that God exists even beyond that. And so, yes, in verse 5, there's a question there. And this is the foundation on which the whole psalm rests. Who is like the Lord our God? The psalmist, filled with wonder and awe at having racked his brain, trying to understand God's greatness, asks that question, who is like this God? And the answer is obvious. There is nothing and no one that can compare to him. In the discipline of apologetics, there's a classical argument for the existence of God called the ontological argument. And it's a very old argument. It's persisted for centuries and hasn't been defeated in apologetic language. Um, and what it suggests in its, in its classical formulation is that um, God is the greatest possible thing that the human mind is capable of imagining, much less understanding. There is none greater. And if there were, he would not be worthy of our worship. And so the psalmist camps out here and praises God for his otherworldly greatness and majesty. But he is not just the transcendent all-powerful creator, king of the universe. Because if we think of him that way, we will have a necessarily cold and impersonal relationship. And our worship of him will be devoid of any affection or enjoyment. So that's clearly not what we're supposed to believe exclusively. And this is essentially point two. He is also the 
all-loving Father who is intimately concerned with the well-being of his children and invites us into his loving presence. The psalmist turns now to what theologians call God's imminence. He is both transcendent and his imminence. He is both the, the great almighty sovereign God who is so other and set apart from us, and he is also Emmanuel. He is God with us. Verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Remember our earlier brief discussion about names and their function in the ancient Near East? The poor, the needy, and the barren woman were all people who lacked the benefit and social security of their name in that culture. They were the destitute ones. They were the untouchables. And interestingly, the psalmist uses two examples. One is distinctly male and the other is female. And in our current cultural climate, um, this would be an unpopular distinction to make. Uh, but in the truly patriarchal society of the psalmist, uh, the men were the ones to whose name their family's wealth and reputation was attached. And this meant that as a man, if you were poor, you were unable to provide any security or status for your family. And no father would want to give his daughter to you in marriage because you would essentially have to sell yourself and your family into slavery just to put food on the table. This was a deeply shameful and stigmatizing position to be in. And likewise, an adult woman's social identity and well-being was necessarily linked to her marriage. This is what makes the story of Naomi and Ruth so amazing. Right? If a man died, his wealth went to his sons, and if he didn't have sons, it went to his brothers and then to their sons because he had inherited from their father. It was the husband's family's wealth, and it stayed in the husband's family. And so, and I want to be appropriately sensitive when we speak about this topic, because I know there are many among us struggling um, with the pain of desiring children but being unable to have them. But in that time, if a woman couldn't bear children for her husband, she couldn't provide any security or status for herself. And if her husband predeceased her, which was usually the case, she would have to beg for food just to survive. And this was obviously equally shameful and stigmatizing. And in both cases, it would have been highly unlikely that they ever would have been able to overcome their circumstances. And they probably would have died homeless and alone. And this is analogous to our spiritual state. Apart from Christ, all of us are spiritually bankrupt, utter destitute, 
unable to ever work or earn our way out of the mess that we are in. But look at what God does. Almighty God allows himself to take on human weakness, to be humiliated, shamed, stigmatized, and ultimately abandoned and brutally murdered. But he rose victorious over sin and death and shame. And in so doing, he gives us a name. He identifies us with himself. He lifts us up out of the dirt and ash and makes us sit with princes. He adopts us as his own and gives us a home and a family forever. The king of the universe stoops from his perfect home above the heavens, needing nothing. And yet he adopts the destitute into his royal family. He picks up the shame, the contaminated, and the untouchable ones in his loving arms, and he calls us his precious possession. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 62. Um, here the Lord is speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Um, and at this moment of history, they are in exile in Babylon. They have been reduced to nothing. They are being mercilessly oppressed, and they are crying out for deliverance. And this is what God tells them is going to happen. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Sorry, 62 verse 1. Thanks, Raven. Um, Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed or called forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And like Israel, when they were in exile, we need a Savior to deliver us. Someone who loves us enough to die for us. And God, in all of his goodness and tenderness, fits that bill. But we also need a Savior who is not like us. No mere creature or being can pay the, the price of our sin. Otherwise, we would need a Savior. We could just save ourselves. But rather, we need a Savior who is holy, eternal, unchanging, if he is going to be able to break the power of sin that enslaves us. In other words, we need a God who is both transcendent and imminent. 
both great and good. I'm going to wrap up with an example of why this is important, that we don't emphasize any one grouping of attributes over any other grouping of God's attributes. Um, a few years ago, there was a bit of a commotion uh, surrounding um, a rather large mainline denomination in the States uh, and their decision to drop the uh, hugely popular Getty hymn, In Christ Alone, from their, the updated version of their official hymn book. And apparently their concerns with the hymn were over the line uh, that goes, and on the, Christ, or on the cross, rather, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to change that line, uh, to, or they were petitioning the copyright owners to change that line to, and on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And when the request was denied, they uh, dropped the hymn entirely by popular vote. And now, it is absolutely true that the love of God is indeed magnified at the cross. There's no question about it. But that is not the only thing going on there. And it's also true that the idea of God's wrath being poured out on sin feels or seems a little bit medieval to us, and it's, and it's maybe a distasteful idea to our human sensibilities. But consider the alternative. If God is truly holy and truly perfect, then by his very nature, he cannot allow sin to exist in his presence. When you turn the lights on in a dark room, the darkness is necessarily driven out. Dark, darkness and light, by their very nature, cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And in the same way, sinful people could never enter the presence of a holy God without being consumed entirely. But at the cross, he made a way. God's perfect justice collided with his perfect love and mercy in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus cries out, it is finished on the cross, it means that all of the requirements for our being welcomed into the loving presence of our Heavenly Father have indeed been satisfied once and for all. To suggest that anything less is going on there is to try and domesticate God. And if we take the teeth out of his wrath, we diminish his perfect love and goodness. If he didn't truly hate and destroy what seeks to destroy us, then he would not be loving. He would simply be indifferent. And the reality is that God's holy justice and wrath against sin is the precondition for any true expression of his love and compassion towards us. Michael Horton, in his book, The Christian Faith, says this, if God's love could trump his other moral attributes, then the cross represents the cruelest waste. The cross is the clearest testimony to God's simplicity 
That is his undivided and indivisible character. God is so incomprehensibly great and he is so unimaginably good to us. And it's precisely because of this that we have been given dignity and worth and value. It's because of this that we have been given a home and a family forever. It's because of this that we have been given a name. It's because of this we have received a priceless inheritance that will never fade or diminish in any way. Because of this, we can take comfort in the fact that every tear we've ever cried, even the ones we've forgotten about, will be wiped away in the end. Who is like this God? Let's pray. Almighty, all-loving Father, we praise you for the beauty of the way you have created us to relate to you. That even our service to you is deeply soul-nourishing. And by it, we come to know you in more true ways. Lord, I'm convicted by how often I think such small thoughts of you. Lord, please make us a people who don't settle for our own tiny versions of you, but who hunger and thirst to know you rightly. Lord, we praise you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us in your holy word and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's, it's his name we pray. Amen.